mythological uh, symbolic representations of the violence of the Roman Empire itself, revealed for what it is by the light that comes from the throne in heaven as John sees it. Today we lay things bare through investigative journalism, but for the ancient mind, telling it like it really is was through this kind of mythic, symbolic representation that, that was believed to, to get at what, what was really going on. Modern scholars believe that John was a, uh, a Palestinian Jewish Christian who had seen the Romans destroy Jerusalem and its temple in the year 70. That'd be about 25 years before he wrote this book. He had seen the slaughter of many thousands of his people and some 70,000 of them carted off into slavery in different parts of the empire. This came as the Roman response to a, a Jewish revolt uh, that began in 66 and was finally defeated in 70. This Roman reprisal is, was the worst single disaster in Jewish history up to the time of the Holocaust of the last century. Like many other Jewish Christians, John fled to Asia Minor, what we would today call Turkey, and circulated as a prophet among the newly forming congregations around there. And he indeed addresses seven of them, uh, or seven networks of churches, of congregations, uh, in the first uh, chapters two and three of, of Revelation. So it's not hard to imagine a, a post-traumatic element in John's voice, and that some of the nightmarish quality of Revelation has to do with what he's already seen and what he's trying to prepare his Christian brothers and sisters for a crisis of similar uh, proportions, which will indeed come in the years ahead. John refers to Rome as Babylon because Babylon was the first destroyer of Jerusalem and the first temple. 600 years before. But in Revelation, the end of the world is not a simple linear event coming in the future. There is some future expectation in Revelation, but in general, it's the structure of Revelation itself that contains the end at all points. For John, to see Rome for what it really is, is to expose and end its mystifying power, a power that keeps the world in wonder and captivity. Bedazzled by the power of Rome, people don't see and find in themselves the power of God that can build a very different kind of world. So Revelation offers an apocalypse, a deconstruction that explodes the splendor of Rome and exposes the blasphemy of Caesar's claim to be Lord of the cosmos and 
Savior, words that were attributed to Caesar. So it's an end that's already beginning. George Fox understood this when he read Revelation in the light of his own unfolding uh, Revelation in the light. He titled one of his books, The Great Mystery of Babylon Unfolded, An Antichrist's Kingdom Revealed Unto Destruction. Language right out of the book of Revelation. So what is this book? A bunch of wild visions and dire predictions? <laughs> it's actually just a compendium of point-by-point -point answers to Puritan doctrinal attacks on Quakers and his counterattacks on Puritans, <laughs> which seems pretty slow going at times and pretty pedestrian, frankly. But again, this is just, just as, as John was revealing the blasphemy of Rome and its worship of Caesar to deconstruct the Puritan regime of his day was to expose its mystifying power and to invite people into the liberating power of coming under Christ's own direct teaching through the light in their own consciences. His message, core message in the 1650s, Christ has come to teach his people himself and take them off the world's ways and religions is, in many ways, a second coming message. But Fox and early friends were also saying that this light has always been there in people's consciences everywhere and in all ages. Problem is, we get alienated from that direct knowledge by other things that dazzle us, scare us, or, or tempt us become idols, and we, we live in alienation from that light and that power that's within and that can build a very different kind of world. So if early friends were concerned and wrote and preached against all kinds of inequality, poverty, immorality, and violence in their society. But they viewed the state-sponsored uh, church with its enfranchised, university-trained clerical class as the key linchpin of an unjust and violent society. And they believed that if they could disestablish that church, uh, it would begin to move people out of alienation and through these kind of what liberation theology would call base you know, groups uh, of local friends meetings networking together or you know, whatever they would be called, uh, that you could rebuild society from the ground up. Now, early friends were not unique in their interest in the book of Revelation. All sorts of individuals and groups had all sorts of readings of it and predictions regarding it, but no group managed to, to mesh revelation with, with the inward experience uh, and to make a social program out of it the way early friends did. That was the real genius of the early Quaker movement. They saw themselves as the revolutionary vanguard that's portrayed in Revelation 14, gathering around the Lamb on a spiritual Mount Zion uh, to, uh, to 
move into conflict with the forces of, of the beast and false prophet, which they saw as the state enfranchised church and its clerical class uh, as the false prophet. Crisis has been a recurring theme in, in these talks, and certainly apocalyptic literature is the literature of crisis. And as I noted on Sunday morning, our word crisis derives from the Greek krisis, same spelling except with a K. <laughs> that means not only a critical moment, but a time of decision, a day of judgment, the day of the Lord that we were talking about yesterday. Discernment. In personal experience, Fox connected it with what Jesus says to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, which is surely a different John, but convergent with John of Revelation, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, this is the judgment, and the, word, the Greek there is krisis, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen. And Fox uses and alludes to that text in many of his uh, epistles of spiritual counsel. But in other tracts and other Quaker literature, they, they shift from that focus on personal experience to this struggle they're having with, with uh, uh, hierarchical and unjust, inequitable society around them. James Naylor wrote the fullest summary of what this conflict was about, which early friends called the Lamb's War, language taken directly from the book of Revelation. He wrote a tract called The Lamb's War in 1657 while he was in prison in London. This was the year after his uh, sensational show trial before Parliament and his savage, savage punishment by Parliament for what they judged to be his horrid blasphemy. What was Naylor's blasphemy and what was so horrid about it? Parliament insisted that Naylor had messianic delusions and was a dangerous person for that reason. In October 1656, he and a group of his friends had enacted in the streets of Bristol uh, a reenactment of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem with Naylor in the starring role. He was arrested later that day. And during his interrogation, Naylor made it clear that he didn't consider himself to be the Christ, but that he was enacting a sign of the coming of Christ in the flesh of common people like himself. Parliament chose to ignore that distinction because they really wanted to stigmatize Naylor and discredit the Quaker movement generally, which they saw as a major threat to a any kind of religious and political settlement in the country. But Naylor's true horrid blasphemy was exactly what he said it was and what really offended Parliament. The idea that Christ 
comes in the flesh of common people like this yeoman farmer from Hicksville, Yorkshire. That was a truly dangerous idea, both theologically and politically. So as the storm around him settled and he began to recover from a series of punishments that took him within an inch of his life, he wrote this outright manifesto, The Lamb's War. As revolutionary an ideology as anything I think the world has ever seen. We could take a few glimpses from that track this morning. We'll begin with the one that was up on the screen while we were waiting for more light. Thanks, Neil. He writes, making it clear that this is a nonviolent struggle, but one that is sweeping in scope. Their war is not against creatures. They wrestle not with flesh and blood, which God hath made, but with spiritual wickedness, exalted in the hearts of men and women, where God alone should be. Indeed, their war is against the whole work and device of the God of this world, his laws, his customs, his fashions, his inventions, and all which are to add to or take from the work of God. The Lamb comes to take the government to himself, that God may wholly rule in the heart of man, and man wholly live in the work of God. This is breathtaking. This is uh, total culture, cultural revolution. Not in the sense that Mao undertook it in the 1960s in China, or some of the Islamic revolutions we've seen since, because this generates persuasively from below rather than being opposed violently from above. But the sweep of it is still startling, even disturbing. But if we think in today's terms, what will it take for us to live sustainably on the earth? What will it take for us really to root out racial injustice in our hearts and in our society. It's a major deconstruction, not destruction, but deconstruction of how we, of our own consciousness and how we act in the world and how we, this kind of structures we create in society. Naylor makes this nonviolent conflict more clear in the next paragraph. He writes, as they war not against men's persons, so their weapons are not carnal nor hurtful to any of the creation. For the Lamb comes not to destroy men's lives, nor to work, nor the work of God. And therefore, at his appearance in his subjects, he puts spiritual weapons into their hearts and hands. Their armor is the light. Their sword is the spirit of the Father and the Son. Their shield is faith and patience. Their paths are prepared with the gospel of peace and goodwill towards all the creation of God. He goes on to describe the Lamb's realm itself. 
his kingdom in this world in which he chiefly delights to walk and make himself known is in the hearts of such as have believed in him and owned his call out of the world, whose hearts he hath purified and whose body he hath washed in obedience. And in such he rejoices and takes delight. He leads them by the gentle movings of his spirit out of all their own ways and wills and guides them into the will of the Father. Deeply he lets them know his covenant and how far they may go and be safe. His presence is great joy to them of a willing mind. So why hasn't the lamb already won this spiritual conflict? Why isn't everybody gathering with the lamb? He goes on to observe, many are ashamed of the lamb's appearance. It is so low and weak and poor and contemptible. Many are afraid of seeing so great a power against him. Many be at work in their imaginations to compass a kingdom to get power over sin and peace of conscience. But few will deny all to be led by the lamb in a way they know not, to bear his testimony and mark against the world and to suffer for it with him. By compass a kingdom, he means all the various ways that we can calculate and strategize, use nonviolence as a technique, uh, as an instrument instead of the deeper spiritual transformation that needs to undergird. The only way to participate in the Lamb's kingdom is to be led by the Lamb in a way that one knows not. And we heard testify, Naylor testify to this on Sunday morning when he talks about walking out that gate and from then on not knowing today what he would be doing tomorrow. And Naylor took that all the way to within an inch of his life, finally. Parliament chose not to execute him, although many wanted to in all sorts of vicious ways. I guess they had learned that much from the gospel. <laughs> they learned from the Romans' mistake, but they hadn't learned from the faithfulness of Jesus. They were still seeking to compass a kingdom. Some of you have asked what happened to Naylor's family after he walked out the front gate that day. He stayed in the north until 1655, later than many of them who had started invading the south by that time. So I think he was able to make trips home. He was of a yeoman status in farmers, which meant he was fairly well established. His wife, Anne, probably had enough funds, uh, resources to hire uh, help on the farm. We know that she came down to London for a while to help him recover from his, from his uh, wounds uh, after Parliament was done with him. And that in, he was finally released in, in September of 1659 and was on his way back home finally in October of 1660 when he was waylaid by unknown assailants and left half dead and he died a few days later in the home of a local Quaker somewhere between 
London and Yorkshire. What became of Anne and her three daughters after that, I, I haven't ever found out. Well, I hope that these half hours have been helpful and useful, even if challenging, uh, in seeing how early friends read scripture and found themselves in its stories and found its stories in their story. I hope that those stories help bridge between our 21st century stories and those ancient and often uh, confusing, even off-putting uh, books in that anthology we call the Bible. And that perhaps we can find there new resources to face the crisis of these times. As Mary Morrison wrote in a little Pendle Hill pamphlet years ago on the work of her teaching the Gospels at Pendle Hill, she said that the, the Bible is like the oracle at Delphi in, in ancient Greece. The answers we receive will depend much on the quality of the questions that we bring. What gifts we've been given this week. If friends can hold us all in 